0: back to Round 12, the podcast that will always be dedicated to growth, development, and motivational mastery. I am your host, Sensei Roger B. Hamilton. Thank you for joining us again today for the 12th episode of the Round 12 podcast series. Let's go get it. Keep
1: your eyes on the prize. Rise and shine. 6 a.m. and your hand can't make it to the alarm clock before the voices in your head start telling you that it's too early, too dark, and too cold to get out of bed. Aching muscles lie still in rebellion, pretending not to hear your brain commanding them to move. A legion of voices are shouting their unanimous permission for you to hit the snooze button and go back to dreamland. But you didn't ask their opinion. The voice you've chosen to listen to is one of defiance, a voice that says there was a reason you set that alarm in the first place. So sit up, put your feet on the floor, and don't look back, because we've got work to do. Welcome to the grind. For what is each day but a series of conflicts between the right way and the easy way. 10,000 streams fan out like a river delta before you, each one promising the path of least resistance. Thing is, you're headed upstream. And when you make that choice, When you decide to turn your back on what's comfortable and safe and what some would call common sense, well that's day one. From there it only gets tougher. So just make sure this is something you want. Because the easy way out will always be there, ready to wash you away. All you have to do is pick up your feet. But you aren't going to, are you? With each step comes the decision to take another. You're on your way now, but this is no time to dwell on how far you've come. You're in a fight against an opponent you can't see, but oh, you can feel them on your heels, can't you? Feel them breathing down your neck. You know what that is? That's you. Your fears, your doubts, and insecurities all lined up like a firing squad, ready to shoot you out of the sky. But don't lose heart. While they're not easily defeated, they are far from invincible. Remember, this is the grind. The battle royale between you and your mind, your body, and the devil on your shoulder is telling you that this is just a game. This is just a waste of time. Your opponents are stronger than you. Drown out the voice of uncertainty with the sound of your own heartbeat. Burn away yourself down with a fire lit beneath you. Remember what we're fighting for and never forget that momentum's a cruel mistress. She can turn on a dime with the smallest mistake. She is ever searching for the weak place in your armor. That one tiny thing you forgot to prepare for. So as long as the devil is hiding the details, the question remains, is that all you got? Are you sure? And when the answer is yes, when you've done all you can to prepare yourself for battle, then it's time to go forth and boldly face your enemy, the enemy within. Only now you must take that fight into the open, into hostile territory. You're a lion in a field of lions, all hunting the same elusive prey with a desperate starvation that says victory is the only thing that can keep you alive. So believe that voice that says you can run a little faster and you can throw a little harder and that for you, the laws of physics are merely a suggestion. Luck is the last dying wish of those who want to believe that winning can happen by accident. Sweat, on the other hand, is for those who know it's a choice. So decide now, because destiny waits for no man. And when your time comes and a thousand different voices are trying to tell you you're not ready for it, listen instead to that lone voice of dissent. The one that says you are ready, you are prepared. It's all up to you now, so rise and shine.
0: Just a word about resilience. Resilience is the process of adapting well in the face of adversity, trauma, tragedy, threats, or significant sources of stress, such as family and relationship problems, serious health problems, or workplace and financial stressors. It means bouncing back from difficult experiences. Research has shown that resilience is ordinary, not extraordinary. Whether they realize it or not, people commonly demonstrate resilience. One example is the response of many Americans to the horrible September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks and various individuals' amazing efforts to rebuild their lives. It's important to note that being resilient does not mean that a person doesn't experience difficulty or distress. Emotional pain and sadness are common in people who have suffered major adversity or trauma in their lives. In fact, the road to resilience is likely to involve considerable emotional distress. However, resilience is not a trait that people either have or do not have. It involves behaviors, thoughts, and actions that can be learned and developed in anyone. Winter was over and New Jersey was on the threshold of summer. I had spent about three quarters of the year being probed, poked, injected, and confined. Between suffering through the dreaded tuberculosis at six years old and seven separate bouts with pneumonia and the long hospitalization to heal didn't help me make for a great look. However, because I was still a kid, to be able to simply go outside was invigorating. But the play with the other kids was heavenly. My family and I were looking through slightly different eyes now. Though my mother was pregnant again and the baby was due in December, we had made our way into the housing project that every black family in the area seemed to want to live in low rent based on what you could afford and some tiny new level of hope. Encouraged by our new living space and my medical recovery, my mother gradually allowed me some time to play outdoors, provided I didn't exert myself and wore my sweater. The budding purple magnolias that surrounded the projects with their pleasant fragrance represented the sweet smell of freedom to me. Mommy, could I go outside? I asked innocently, just enthralled at how bright the sunshine was and how sweet the spring air smelled. Go ahead, my mother answered firmly, but you make sure you wear your sweater and stay close. I will, I answered sweetly. I eagerly made my way out the sun-drenched courtyard of Parkside housing projects. I immediately encountered some kids playing an enthusiastic game of kickball in the middle of the street. I ran over and asked if I could be involved in the game and jump in. The other kids found a place for me. And in short order, I was kicking and running around the bases in ecstasy. I was thrilled with the freedom of running. For the first time in a great while, I laughed out loud with the other kids as we competed fiercely for kickball bragging rights. Tiny beads of perspiration began to form on my forehead. I wiped my brow without thinking as I rounded the impromptu third base, which was drawn with the edge of a bottle top and the pavement kickball diamonds. Wow, this is fun, I thought to myself. Soon my hot face was speckled with bubble-sized beads of sweat, and, and my warm neck became damp from the sweat that was now pouring steadily from all over my body. Instinctively, I snatched my arms through the sleeves of my sweater and tossed the burgundy wool pullover casually on the warm ground. My eyes glazed over with excitement. I dashed back to the game. Suddenly in mid motion, I realized that I had done just what my mother told me not to do. I had taken off my sweater. I knew I would surely be murdered or worse if my mom found out. I quickly made an about face and plucked my crumpled sweater from the ground. I twirled in an investigative half circle searching for somewhere to hang the nuisance of a sweater. Suddenly, I spotted a large bush with small dark green pointed leaves, red berry shaped flowers, and long brown needle sharp thorns. I ran several steps to the convenient shrubbery and anxiously grabbed my sweater by the collar. I chose a protruding limb which was sticking out just enough to suit my needs. I hung the small sweater on the springy branch and ran back to the game. It was my turn to kick and I eagerly approached home plate. The young pitcher rolled the burgundy rubber ball toward my foot. I swung my leg behind me and kicked the ball high into the air. I was strong for my size. You could see and hear the hollow thump as the ball landed on the hard concrete. I ran speedily past first base, then cautiously slammed on brakes at second. Safe. The adolescent outfielder threw the huge ball back into play. I waited purposely on second base. My teammate stu- stepped up to take his turn to kick. Once again, the pitcher rolled the ball. My teammate made contact and the bouncing sphere zipped left, completely out of the field of play. Foul. In an instant, my eyes followed the bouncing ball. I spied the bush where i had hung the sweater. My clean garment had fallen from its impromptu hanger. Time out, I yelled as I slowly removed my foot from second base. I rushed toward the shrubbery. I reached down and grabbed my sweater, then began brushing and flicking it to hide any evidence that I'd removed it. I'm hot, I reasoned. I have to take this off. Once again, I held the sweater by its collar and hung it from the branch. My playmate waited patiently for me to return to the action. Once more, I ran back to the game. I found my place at second base and finally my teammate kicked the ball hard enough to bring me home. What a joy to add another run to my delighted team score. We cheered and slapped hands and smiled. While celebrating with my team at home plate, I noticed my sweater from the corner of my eye. It had fallen again. Determined, I ran from the celebration. This time I hung the sweater, but I stubbornly stood hovering over it, watching it droop from the weak branch. Suddenly, the sweater dropped to the ground and a limp branch snapped upward, forcing one of the long, sharp thorns into my open eye. Ouch. I responded calmly to the sharp spike. I felt an immediate burning sensation, and I began vigorously rubbing my stinging brown eye. A large and steady stream of tears fell from the irritated eyeball. The more I rubbed, the more inflamed my eye became. I was young maybe too young to realize the seriousness of what just happened to me, but I was old enough to know I couldn't see. My sweater still lying on the warm ground, I became completely preoccupied with this new sensation. I continued rubbing my eyes, my teammates beckoned, come on Roger, it's your turn to kick. I almost forgot my sweater completely as I turned again toward the action while still briskly rubbing my eye. I made a quick about face and decided to put the troublesome sweater back on. At this point, it wasn't worth the trouble. I was back at home plate now, but each time I tried to open my right eye, it felt like a giant spotlight was shining into it. My eye began to hurt each time I opened it. The now impatient pitcher rolled the ball. I saw the large object rolling toward me, but this time, when I swung my right leg backward and took a swipe at the ball, I missed it completely. The young pitcher rolled the ball again, and I aggressively kicked the ball foul. After three more pitches, I walked to first base, still rubbing my eye. My teammate kicked the fly, which somebody caught. Three outs. I took the field with the others. The tears drained steadily from my eye. After after several more unsteady innings, the game was over, and my team had won. I celebrated with the others, but my share of the victory was bittersweet. None of the other kids seemed to notice that I was rubbing my eye like crazy. It had been a gorgeous day. The beautiful orange and red sun was disappearing fast. Nightfall was steadily approaching. The time came for me to go home, but I dreaded the thought of telling my pregnant mother what happened. I hated hearing her scream. Even more unappealing was the thought of one of those patented whoopings she would lay on my behind. So when I reached the corner apartment in the brand new building, my left hand reached for the shiny new aluminum storm door as my right hand made one last rub at my injured eye. I walked calmly into the rear door and muttered a quick and solemn hello to my mother's back as she worked in the kitchen. I went straight up the stairs to my room at the end of the hallway. Luckily, I had a room of my own now, while my sisters shared their room together. I rubbed my eye continually until dinner time. Again, I tried to be strong. By now, my eye was impossible to keep open. Roger, my mother called from the bottom of the stairs. Wash your hands and get ready to eat. I washed my hands as instructed and prepared to sit at the table with my family. Hey man, my father greeted with a smile and as I reached the bottom of the stairs. Hi daddy, I replied quietly. As I went immediately to my seat at the table. My head was tilted toward the floor. My eye was swollen now. My two sisters took their place at the table filled with fried chicken, green beans, cornbread, mashed potatoes and gravy. My father sat down at the head of the table and my mother, still standing, began pouring fresh, extra sweet iced tea into everyone's glass. She filled all the glasses and sat down to say grace. God, we thank you for this food we're about to receive and its nourishment to our bodies. For Christ's sake, a resounding amen echoed around the table. I was the first to begin eating. If I could get through dinner without raising my head, maybe I could escape. Surely the next day my eye would be fine. I began wolfing down my food like I was on a mission. Soon my mouth was stuffed full on both sides until my cheeks poked out like a squirrel collecting nuts. Boy, why are you eating so fast? My mother barked. Mm-hmm, I replied with my mouth completely full. My head was still facing downward toward the table. Well, slow down, my mother snapped. I began chewing snail slow. Now my mother was staring at me. My tiny sisters were humming and toying with their food engrossed in the pleasure of their meal. My mother was still staring at me. Boy, what's wrong with your eye? she asked sternly. She clanked her fork down on her plate and tilted her head toward me. "'Nothing?' I answered, swallowing a large, painful lump of food. "'Boy, your eye is swollen. Don't tell me nothing. What happened to you?' My mother's eyes were wide with passion. "'I don't know,' I answered quietly, with my good left eye stretched wide with sincerity. My mother offered a heavy sigh as she rose from the table." She walked toward me and took my chin gently in her hand. I tried to resist and she jerked my head up again. Hold your head up here, boy. She stopped. My mother made an exasperated sucking sound as she forced open my swollen eye. Ow! I moaned out loud. Shut up, boy. Let me look at this eye. My eye was blood red and watery. My mother asked again, Roger, what happened to your eye? I don't know. I whined again, almost crying. Now, my father had rested his fork and was staring at me, too. Finish eating, my mother snapped. You're going to the emergency room. No, mommy, I pleaded. Don't you talk back to me, my mother yelled. You just eat that food so we can go. As if in response to my mother's instructions to me, my father and sisters picked up their forks simultaneously. I was worried. Not that hospital again, I thought. I hate that place. The more I tried to stall, the faster time moved. Before I could prepare myself for the hospital and its alarming sights and sounds, I found myself walking through those large double doors again. My eye was hurting by now. My mother, ever vigilant, sat me down on the first available seat. Now you sit right here and don't you move until I get back. Yes, ma'am. I looked innocently up at my mother from behind my good eye, while my injured eye remained shut. The hard wooden chair was cool and stiff under my behind. I began turning my head left and right in all directions, trying to see as much as I could with the vision on only one side of my head. My mother turned and quickly walked toward the stern looking grandmotherly white nurse who was sitting at her small desk only a few feet away. I could see my mother began talking to this expressionless Caucasian woman and somehow knew I was in for trouble. Though I had seen my mother in her candy-striped uniform before, and it never bothered me, but somehow this nurse seemed so official and scary, I sat perfectly straight and still. As I watched the variety of people moving about in the semi-crowded emergency room, suddenly, the heavy emergency room doors flung open, and two uniformed men pushing a man lying on a stretcher rushed past me. I could see a large patch of red liquid oozing through the white sheet that covered the apparently unconscious man. Ooh, that man is bleeding, I thought. All at once, I imagined the middle-aged black man as the victim of a stabbing or maybe a gunshot. Suddenly, I became very antsy. My mother turned away from the nurse's desk and began walking briskly toward me. My eye was as big as a tennis ball by now. My mother noticed I was fidgeting in my chair. She popped down in the chair next to me. Boys, sit still. We ain't going nowhere. In my last-ditch effort, I decided to come clean. My mother sat on my right, so I turned my head completely around. I could see her with my good left eye. With my eyes stretched wide open, I began telling my mother about the accident. See, Mommy, when I was outside playing, my my sweater got real hot, and I only took it off for a minute, but did not tell you not to take that sweater off? She barked. Yes, uh, I mumbled. But when I was playing kickball, then uh, when when I was trying to hang it up, I, I got a sticker in my eye, and I announced. A sticker? My mother replied with a pronounced frown on her face while staring down at me. What kind of sticker, she asked abruptly. The the sticker's on the tree by our house, I answered. Oh, God, she said out loud as she expelled an aggravated sigh. Boy, how did you get a sticker in your eye? I reluctantly told my mother the whole story as I stuttered and stammered, hoping she wouldn't slap me right there in the hospital. All she seemed able to do was shake her head slowly and solemnly as she looked down at the polished dark gray and white checkerboard linoleum floor. I finished my story and looked eagerly at my mother. She became alarmingly silent. Anna Hamilton? Anna Hamilton? The silence was broken by a pretty young nurse carrying a clipboard. My mother reached for my hand and she looked simultaneously toward the beckoning nurse. Here, my mother offered calmly. Too late, I was on my way to what was sure to be some kind of additional discomfort. I was silently kicking myself for not coming clean earlier. My mother and I weaved our way past a series of assembled chairs in the bright emergency room. I noticed the unfamiliar adult's eyes follow me and my mommy all the way out of view. My fear was growing again. My mother's face was in conflict with itself. She was half smiling and half frowning as she provided the nurse with the information I had just given her about the sticker. I was still looking around in anticipation of a shot or some kind of additional pain. I always noticed that when I came to these places that the only personnel I ever saw were white. It seemed contradictory to the stories and cautious messages I'd heard and always heard from my people. Ironically, it seemed that whenever there was a crisis, it was always some white person who came to the rescue. The nurses and all the doctors who had ever examined me were white. All my teachers and even my tutor was white. Plus, as I had noticed from the pictures in church, even Jesus was white. Sometimes it was complicated trying to understand what it was I was supposed to be looking out for. The smiling nurse touched me gently on the top of my round, shaven head. My mother made a point to get my nappy head to the barbershop only two days earlier. He's so cute, the young nurse offered, as though I was a puppy who couldn't respond. My mom smiled amicably as she and the nurse looked directly at each other. The doctor will be in to see you very shortly. Thank you, my mother said quietly while standing over me. I was sitting on the hospital bed behind the large curtain attached to the ceiling. The rubber soles of the nurse's white shoes squeaked as she turned on the shiny, clean floor. My pregnant mother peered at me as if to say, "Boy, you sure caused me a lot of trouble." Of course, I hadn't intended to stab myself in the eye with a needle-sharp thorn, but it was the beginning. It was beginning to seem like I was one of the victims of a strange, manifest destiny. Not realizing the severity of what was happening to me, I was far more concerned with avoiding shots and pills than anything else. Suddenly. The tall doctor with a deep voice and subdued manner pulled back the white curtain and entered the small space with me and my mother. He looked quickly at my mom's. Mrs. Hamilton? Yes, she answered. My name is Dr. Allen. That uncharacteristic strained fake smile came to her mouth. That was the smile she and Mama Hattie wore when they talked to white people as though it were painful somehow. Saying nothing more, The doctor turned toward me. Let's have a look at you, young man. I flinched. Don't worry, son. I'm not going to hurt you. Sit still, Roger, my mother instructed quietly. The anonymous doctor reached for my head. His large hands were cold as he placed them gently on either side of my forehead. The emotionless physician stretched open my swollen eye. Suddenly, like an explosion, Or an abrupt shot in the head the pain erupted around my eyeball. Ow! I shouted. The stream of tears began to flow once more. Oh my. Dr. Allen responded. Once more he forced open my eye as his face was only an inch or two from mine. I could feel the awkward invasion of my small personal space. The brief examination lasted only several moments. The sullen doctor suddenly came to life this looks very serious he offered there's not much i can do he resigned i'm going to give you the name of a specialist he can tell you more about the injury my mother's eyes grew large as she watched the doctor write out the name and address of the ophthalmologist dr allen suggested applying cool compressors until we could see the specialist my mother thanked him she and i left that hospital that evening in silence First thing the next morning, we took the hour-long drive to Somerville in my mother's rusty, dark green Plymouth that looked like the Batmobile. The specialist's name was Dr. Edwin B. Slumka. We arrived at the one-story red brick, brick building and entered the dark wood and glass door to what looked like the converted house. A large, mean-looking, middle-aged nurse nurse lady greeted us sternly. She reminded me of a larger version of Mama Hattie's employer, Miss Goldstein. She had dark features and her mouth and and her mouth seemed etched into an immovable frown. She was assuredly all business. The nurse asked us to wait as she disappeared through a wooden door nearby. My mother and I sat down in a comfortable, quiet waiting room. The nurse was back quickly with Dr. Slumka behind her. He was dressed in a white lab coat buttoned to the top. Dr Slumpa Slumka, Slumka was tops in his field, was a stern, unsmiling man with large, hairy hands. He seemed as tall and scary as Frankenstein. He reached out to shake my mother's hand and insisted that she remain outside in the waiting room during the examination. My mother complied and I entered the quiet room. Dr. Slumka guided me toward the large black leather chair with the ophthalmologic machines in front and disappeared for a moment. I almost jumped from my chair when the lights suddenly went out. Dr. Slumpka sat his large body down in the chair behind the machines and began adjusting the equipment. He asked me firmly to sit up and forward. I did as he asked. He pressed the machines up against my face and I could feel the cool sensation of the coated metal. He pressed his face up against the machines as well and we were kissed close, separated by only the machines. My left eye was looking through the small holes in the apparatus and my right eye was swollen shut. The stoic specialist had a strong, heavy breath that smelled of sausage. I could feel his heated vapors as he breathed deeply in front of me. I felt like I was in another world, sitting in his dark, quiet, cavernous examination room. Dr. Slumka took great care to open my swollen eyes slowly and carefully. Once again, it began to tear but the pain seemed more tolerable now. I could see the lights and scopes shining through my left eye and I could feel Dr. Slumka's movement, but all I could see through my right eye was a faint, blurry, faded, distant light. The face-to-face exam seemed to take forever. Dr. Slumka didn't try to talk to me or calm me. He just scoped my eyes like I wasn't even there. I felt like I would never get out of there all alone with this really scary man. Finally, the tedious and painful exam was concluded. Relieved, I joined my mother in the waiting room. In a matter of moments, we were both escorted into Dr. Slumka's private office. My mother and I sat down in front of the large oak desk in the plush adorned office. The quiet was alarming. Dr. Slumka entered shortly from the rear door. He dropped his large heavy frame into the shiny burgundy rolled and pleated leather chair behind his desk. He offered an extended sigh. Mrs. Hamilton? Yes, doctor? Mommy's voice trembled slightly. Your son has a very serious eye injury. I'm not certain he will ever be in a position to see from it again. Oh, no, my mother replied, almost crying. He sustained a puncture to the pupil which is a very important part of the eye. We must get him to the hospital immediately. I can't promise anything right now, but we need to put him under observation right away. It will certainly be somewhat uncomfortable for him as he looked toward me squirming like I was on pins and needles. But if we can do anything for him at all, he must be admitted immediately. Suddenly an ominous blanket of silence covered the room. Imaginary ghosts began to dance around Dr. Slumka's office, and the only person who could see them was me. I was frightened. I was on my way back to the hospital, whether I liked it or not. I knew better than to complain this time. Somehow I knew that vision was a serious matter. At that very moment, I began to see the world from a uniquely different vantage point. I realized in an instant that the troubled vision I had while trying to finish the game of kickball, would be small by comparison. No matter what the doctor said or didn't say, I knew that there would be some difficult days and nights ahead. Mommy and I left Dr. Slumka's office and began the short drive to Somerville Hospital in an apparent state of shock. I sat stiff in the passenger seat of an old wing Plymouth. My pregnant mother was silent, I was looking at the trees and the budding flowers, stretching my eye open with wonder. I knew that this opportunity to look around me would soon be compromised. We reached the hospital and my mother carefully parked the huge late model car that daddy brought. Still quiet, we both walked inside. Dr. Slumka had already arrived. The hospital staff reacted with the kind of emergency that resembled a bleeding trauma victim. I was instantly whisked away. I found myself taking my last loop through one eye at what felt like all day and night of Dr. Slumka and his support staff hovering over me. They packed both my eyes with a gooey ophthalmologic ointment and slowly bandaged them shut. I was back in the hospital all right, but this time I was completely blind. I felt remarkably calm as I lay there in that strange, dark environment. Once I could have seen the assortment of scary things coming at me. Now, everything looked the same. Now, with no vision, I notith- noticed that sounds took on a bright new clarity. I could hear everything moving around me and I sensed when someone was near. Even the sound of silence began to offer its own kind of message. I remained in Somerville Hospital for about two weeks. Most of the time, my eyes were bandaged shut. When it was all over and I could stand up and walk away, my right eyelid still hung low, like a half-open window shade. The vision, which I had always taken for granted, was snowy like distortion on a television screen. Images were unrecognizably blurry at best, and the light seemed to hurt my eyes. Worst of all, my injured eye, now affected my good eye. It seemed to demand an extra attention from my brain as a compensation for its trouble. My right eye had now become my body's new problem. I was declared legally and permanently blind in one eye. While lying there in suspense with my eyes bandaged shut, I had learned what it felt like to be completely blind. So in a real way, I felt lucky. It didn't take much to realize that for the rest of my life would seem like an awfully long time. Half of my body's view would be dark, like a shiny new car with only one working headlight. I was not yet eight years old, but my young spirit had gotten a thunderous wake up call. I had to come to terms with my frightened emotions and endure. These early events seemed to start the wheels of my life turning much faster than they might have normally. Once I was back at home, I must admit the adjustment was difficult. I bumped into things. I was always squinting and I was unsure when I walked. Once my eyes started to cross, I became the target for every joke my young peers could think of. The optical malady took its toll on me emotionally. Now, I was no longer like the other kids. I was dead I was Cyclops and I was different. Summer came and went. I was forced to repeat my second grade school year due to prolonged absences. The next September, I geared up for an uneasy time. Surprisingly, I endured the constant ridicule of my young friends and achieved good grades that year. In spite of everything, I just wanted to be a normal kid, and I was going about the business of doing just that. Commitment to excellence. Quality is never an accident. It is always the result of high intention, sincere effort, intelligent direction, and skillful execution. It represents the wise choice of many alternatives. Will Foster. It should be noted that the term commitment to excellence is one of the registered trademarks of the multiple Super Bowl champion Oakland Raiders NFL football team. Demanding more of yourself than others do seems to be an important ingredient in the formula that defines effective accomplishment. I love how this phrase conjures up a picture of doing your best. Being a magnet to the people and circumstances that mirror your intentions happens almost like a magic formula When you lock in your standards, see what John Spence has to share with us about his take on the powerful and proverbial commitment to excellence and three necessary ingredients. Focus. To be truly excellent at anything, you must have an incredibly clear definition of what excellence is to you, what it will look like in your life and how you will measure it. I call this your personal philosophy of excellence. Once you have thoughtfully created your own personal philosophy of excellence, you must then focus on it intensely day in and day out, always keeping a clear picture of specifically what you must do to achieve the level of excellence you honestly want in your life. Discipline. Once you have determined what excellence looks like, you and created a plan to move your life in that direction, you must then exhibit a level of discipline that most people are unwilling to put forth. Lots of people talk about excellence. Many say they want to be more effective, successful, happier, more joyful, but is the rare person who applies consistent discipline in order to turn their plan into reality. Action. The amount of success you achieve in your life is directly proportional to the amount of action you apply to staying disciplined around your personal philosophy of excellence. Not quite clear on what excellence and success looks like to you? Or you know exactly what you want, but you're not very disciplined about pursuing it? Or perhaps you really understand what level of excellence you want to achieve, and you're very disciplined, but you just don't apply much action to your philosophy? The outcome is mediocrity. And we have a saying in my in my firm, the minute you start accepting mediocrity in your life, you become a magnet for mediocrity in your life. The truth is, the process to achieve excellence is not that complicated if you simply apply focus, discipline and massive action. Of course, the same could be said for winning an Olympic gold medal in the 100 yard dash run really fast faster than everyone else. Look how recurring these points of interest and direction are. It seems that the basic principles and guidelines are similar in every leadership environment. It almost seems that if you just stay the course and remain disciplined, you'll get there. I think, however, it's important to know that pursuing excellence does not mean you find perfection. This translates to the fact that mistakes will happen. Maybe even giant, goofy, I can't believe I did that, ridiculous, dumb mistakes. Maybe mistakes from other people will affect your perfectly executed course. Maybe large thorns will be placed on a large tree in front of your home, except for, except for no reason but that the architect decided he wanted a mean bush to watch over the community property. No matter how you look at it, we human beings will drop the ball sometime. We will fall down and skin our knees and hit our heads and break stuff. But the best advice is expressed very directly in the Japanese proverb. Fall down seven times. Stand up eight. In an effort to always keep moving and moving forward. I remember teaching myself to jump rope so that I could accomplish 1,000, then 2,000, then 3,000, all the way to 10,000 turns of the rope in one session. It should be noted that I've only done that 10,000 turns four times in my career. However, I've done 2,000 turns many hundreds of times, most at the end of a workout. I've done 3,000 turns almost as many times, 5,000 turns and 7,000 turns have been visited quite a few times as well. The point is, is that when I started, I could not do 100 turns without missing. That became my new goal. Every time I miss, I return to one and start all over. Then 200 turns without missing, and then 300. The point here, so eloquently stated by Aristotle, is that quality is not an act. It is a habit. From another perspective, the hugely popular kids movie Finding Nemo about a father searching for his son and the challenges he encountered. I often remember one unique character named Dory. When fear and danger and challenge approached, Dory would chant gleefully, just keep swimming, just keep swimming. So when all else fails, I encourage you to just keep swimming. Thank you for checking in with us again today for today's round 12. May you live as long as you want and never want as long as you live. May the worst days of your future be like the best days of your past. And may you continue to answer life's bell every time. Until we meet again, time.